A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And our Malava Malka episode tonight has been sponsored by a listener um, for a special cause. And it is as follows. Attention Far Rockaway in Five Towns Community, which parenthetically is apropos since we recently uh, did an episode on uh, Far Rockaway. But a new directory has just launched to help promote your business as well as to promote the very important concept of help, helping each other during these challenging times. Frombiz.org. With COVID-19 having had such a huge negative impact on so many local businesses, this initiative has been set up free of charge to make the community aware of all of the local from businesses so that we can all help each other. To promote your local business, go to Frombiz.org and use the special code Six one three. Thank you for the sponsorship. And there were a couple of letters that came in. We, after our Farakaway episode, we had a Baltimore episode. So someone submitted the very important correction that I incorrectly uh, called Maryland the Confederate state, a secessionist state from the Union during the Civil War, and that is not correct. It never seceded from the Union. It was a slave state, but it was a border state that stayed with the Union, uh, mainly because um, um, Lincoln, you know, imposed martial law there and, and it was not able to secede. But at the end of the day, it was not part of the Confederacy. So thank you for that correction. And it's just a reminder that I need to brush up on uh, American history and I've been focusing way too much on Jewish history lately. Another Baltimore episode correction was that Rabbi Yitzchak Sternhold, despite the fact that he came from a Tzan's background and considered himself a Tzanzer Chassid, but he actually lived in Munkach and was a Dayan there in Munkach and was close with the Minchas Elazar of Munkach, so to mention the Munkach connection also and not just Tzans. And the third and most important correction is that I got from several uh, Baltimore listeners who got very animated about what was the real official name of the um, ad hoc Mincha uh, Shul next to the hot dog stand. Was it baseball or Kahal Ripken? And a few listeners weighed in on it, and 
A few insisted that it was baseball and not Kahal Ripken. So thank you for that very important correction. And before we move on to the topic of tonight's episode, I want to uh, just make a very important historical uh, date pointed out that uh, for most of the world and yesterday and for Israel and um, for, uh, and, uh, and the former Eastern Bloc, the, the communist world, Russia, and its former satellites. So this, this was the 75th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, uh, end of World War II, the European theater of World War II. It wasn't the end of World War II. The Battle of Okinawa was continuing in all its ferocious, uh, the battle that it was out in the Pacific. But as far as the European theater was concerned, it was the end of World War II. And in the context of Jewish history, it meant that the Holocaust was finally over and the um, difficult task of, task of rebuilding uh, began. And the reason that it's a question, is, is it on May 8th or May 9th, was because there were two different signings of the surrender. And the first surrender took place in, in Reims, and, and it was under Eisenhower's direction, but Stalin did not recognize that. So there was a second surrender the next day in Berlin, Wilhelm Keitel, the chief of staff of the of the German High Command uh, surrendered to Georgi Zhukov, the uh, highest ranking officer in the Red Army, the great hero of World War II, and in a very uh, uh, in a ceremony in Berlin, and um, and therefore in Russia and all its satellite states, May 9th was always VE Day, and in the Western world, the United States and in England and other places, May 8th was VE Day. So Israel naturally celebrates it as May 9th. And, uh, and actually, it's, it, it was unofficially uh, recognized as May 9th. And then just last year or two years ago, the Knesset passed legislation to officially recognize it as an official day in the state of Israel. And the reason that it goes with the Russian day is obviously because of the Russian Jewish immigration in the 90s and that the most uh, World War II vets in Israel are from the former Soviet Union and not from England or the United States. And moving on to tonight's episode, enough of a long introduction there, we're going to speak a little bit about a, a national treasure, the Aleppo Codex, or as it is also known, the Keter Aram Tsova, the great uh, complete manuscript of or formerly complete manuscript of Tanakh in the Jew, held for many centuries in the Jewish community of Chalib in Syria and what happened to it how was it rescued from Syria and and what's going on with it uh, how did it come to Israel and that whole story so let's a little bit of a background as an order um, what is this Aleppo Codex so the city of Aleppo is the ancient Jewish community of Chalib in in Syria, and very old, one of the oldest in the world, um, just just also just recently, like last year or two years ago, I don't know exactly when. Um, the more contemporary it is, the less I know. Um, the la- literally the last Jews of of Aleppo were taken out because of the whole civil war situation there, and the ancient one of the most ancient Jewish communities in the world came to unfortunately an end. Now. The um, so the 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 codex, this manuscript of Tanakh, 
was written in the 10th century, the 930-something, and it was edited and finished in about 960. So it's a long time ago. It's over a thousand years ago. And it was a complete Tanakh. And it kept the, the and it, the reason it's so important is because it's the oldest, was the oldest complete Tanakh that had also the vowelization, the Nikud. It had the trup, the sound, the signs of how to pronounce words. It also had the psuchis and stumas, the parshias of how to divide uh, when each one starts and ends. And uh, in everything, in its entirety, and it was edited by someone who was considered to be the greatest editor of what's known as the Masoretic Text, uh, Ben Usher. And... Um, and it was relied upon by the Rambam famously when it was during its time that it was in Egypt, and the Rambam examined it, and he used it as the basis for writing when the Psuchus and Stumas, the beginnings and endings of each parsha, uh, are in the Torah. The Rambam relied on the Aleppo Codex. In other words, it has a great importance. Now, this a lot of this is ancient history, and I definitely am not really an expert in that period of history. And I'm definitely not an expert in how the uh, Masoretic uh, text works and the importance of it and Nikud and all that stuff. It's definitely uh, not not my um, area of expertise. Just a little bit of background about why it has such a, a very, very great importance. Many people used it and, and it was considered a source and a guide for how the Tanakh should be written, how the Torah should be written, and how words should be pronounced and what the correct spelling is for many, many, many centuries. So it's written originally in Tveria. By the way, this Ben Usher himself, himself was a character of controversy well, because he was very likely that he was a Karite. And if he was a Karite, that means that you know, we're relying on a Karite. And I guess Karites are pretty reliable with Tanakh. That's the only thing that they uh, consider to be uh, binding in Jewish law. But it's still at the same time, the Rambam who disputed the Karaites and fought with them in Fustat for many years. And, uh, you know, the Karaites was definitely um, traditional Jews or rabbinic Judaism didn't really uh, like uh, getting along with the Karaites and their traditions for a long time. So the fact that this, the Aleppo Codex, is relied on for pretty much everything, if it was written by a Karaite, it's a little, a bit of a curiosity or an irony. But it's not for sure that he was. In any event, we move along. So it's written in Tveria. It eventually ends up in Yerushalayim during the First Crusade when the Holy Land is invaded by the peasants from France and Germany in the, at the end of the 11th century. So it's ransomed by the Egyptian Jewish community and, and it ends up in Egypt. And it remains there for a couple hundred years. And towards the end of the 14th century and probably in the 13th 1370s, it moves from Egypt, unclear why, perhaps a descendant of the Rambam, uh, it ends up in Aleppo, in Khalid, the Syrian Jewish community. And they are the guardians of it, the loyal and dedicated guardians of it for the next almost six centuries, close to 600 years. It's kept in the great synagogue or the central synagogue of Aleppo, of Khalid, in the area of the shul known as Heichal Elio Anavi, and they're very careful with it. Eventually, in the later years, it was kept in an iron safe, 
with two keys, uh, two different caretakers each had a key. No one, no one person had total access to it, very limited access to outsiders, even to researchers, people who wanted to use it as a model for Sifrei Torah or for other Tanakhs. It was a very heavily guarded treasure. They were very zealous, zealously guarded to make sure nothing happened to it. Uh, there were people who saw it and used it and took notes from it over the years. Uh, the famous traveler and chronicler Yaakov Sapir of the 19th century, he wrote that a emissary was sent, not he himself, even though he traveled all over the world, which he also is a great story, but they, but he either he sent or an emissary was sent that he was in contact with that examined it and took notes from it. There were others who did it in the 19th century. In fact, the last outsider, as it were, who uh, checked it, who used it, was Dr. Rabbi Dr. Umberto Casuto, who, uh, who was an Italian scholar later in Hebrew University, ran away from fascist Italy in the 1930s, and he was sent in 1943 by Hebrew University to examine it. He was a religious scholar and a, and a scholar of the field of Tanakh, and parenthetically, he had one of the best uh, mustaches in history. You know, he got he had a seat. He's probably like the top five people who had amazing mustaches. And, the, you know, first place, obviously, is going to go to uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II of, of, of Prussia, of, of Germany. But um, I think this Rabbi Casuto goes into one of the best ones. Yeah, I've got to see a picture of him. In any event, there, there were quite a few researchers who saw it over, over the time, but he was the last one, and he examined it, and he came to some interesting conclusions, which were not agreed by others about it. But that's not all part of our story. Our story begins in 1947. What happens is that following World War I, the Ottoman Empire falls apart. The French get the mandate over Syria. Beginning of World War II, the, uh, the Vichy of France, or, which was a collaborationist regime together with the Nazis, they have control over the French colonies in the Middle East and North Africa. So the British and the Free French forces invade Syria during World War II. World War II battles were fought in the Middle East, believe it or not. In fact, the British army did not have enough reserves to carry out the invasion, so they drafted members of the Jewish Yishuv and, and uh, Arabs from Jordan into the British army, and they're the ones who essentially invaded Syria. In fact, you ever see um, pictures of Moshe Dayan, and he had the patch on uh, one of his eyes, um, so it was. Uh, so he actually got the patch, not fighting for Israel, but fighting for the British in a British uniform during this uh, invasion of Syria during World War II. So, so then, so the British and the Free French have control over it, and in 1946, Syria gets its independence. Gets its independence. There is a deterioration um, of the attitude towards the Jewish community; becomes a little more rough. And then the crucial moment comes at the end of November 1947. The partition plan is voted on and announced in the UN, and the Arab world erupts and is not excited about the partition plan. And there's a pogrom. There's pogroms all over, but there's in our context there's a pogrom in in um, in Syria. The Aleppo pogrom is in December 1947. The Syrian Jewish community at the time is about 15,000 Jews. It had already shrunk over the last half a century 
mainly for economic uh, considerations. There was a lot of movement to other areas, to Turkey, to Egypt, the United States, to other places, South America also. But there was still about 15,000 Jews there. The rabbi of the Aleppo Chalab Jewish community was Chacham Moshe Tavil, and one of the two caretakers of the of the uh, Keter Aram Sova, the, the Aleppo Codex, was Ezra Dabach. And um, and that's that's what it looks like when the pogrom hits. Um, there are about 75 Jews killed, a terrible pogrom. Um, hundreds of stores and homes ransacked, and most importantly, the great synagogue was burned. And it was burned, it was thought that the the Codex was lost. Rumor was that the Keter disappeared, possibly burned, and it seemed that it was gone. Several months later, Syrian Jewish immigrants arriving from Syria to Israel relayed the information to different people in Israel that the Keter was not lost. It was still around. The, ru- the reason that there were rumors that it was lost, that it had been burned, is because the Jewish community of Aleppo itself was spreading the rumors so that the Arabs would not go searching for it, and this way they would be able to hide it. And they hid it. And they hid it for years in Aleppo in private homes in different places, and it was hidden. So it was not gone. So now there's this uh, operation to get it out of Aleppo because it seems to be in danger. The Syrian government was not very kind to the Syrian Jewish community during the 1940s and 50s. Severe restrictions, and they didn't allow them to emigrate. And within the, they confiscated passwords. Whole the story of the of the collapse of the Jewish community in Syria and the anti-Semitic policies of the uh, Syrian government is definitely a whole story in, in itself. Um, but in, for the importance of our story, there was a pressing movement or motivation to try to get the Keter out of Syria, where it seemed that it would be in danger if it stayed in Aleppo. So they are trying to get it out. Eleven years later, in 1958, the, um, the, they finally get it out. Before I get to that, one of the ones who were involved in trying to get it out was the president of the state of Israel, second president of the state of Israel, Yitzhak ben Svi. He goes on this quest, along with quite a few others. He wasn't the only one to get it to Israel. Now, what was Yitzhak ben Svi's incentive to get it? So ben Svi was an intellectual. He was a researcher, besides for being a politician and a socialist and an activist and a lot of other things. He was also a researcher. Um, he, his main field of research was the Jewish communities of North Africa and the Middle East. Um, he dedicated his life to it, wrote about it, he researched it. He, as the uh, president of the State of Israel, he also headed a research institute that researched those communities and collected data and artifacts and all kinds of other things that remains till today. Yad Yitzchak Ben Svi, which is an important research institute, and it's at his residence and the grounds of it in Rechavia. Smack in the middle of Rechavia, you have Yad Yitzchak Ben Svi, which is the former residence of the President of the State of Israel. Um, he, you know, interesting fellow, a brilliant man, um, quite popular in his time also because he, he had a certain simplicity to him. He said he wants to identify with the people, to live simply. He lived in like a, a wooden, very simple uh, home, and which still exists, you could go to it uh, till today in Rechavia. wasn't Rechavia wasn't the upscale neighborhood that it was then, um, so so it definitely was a, a simple place. 
and uh, and he in in the context of this not only being the leader one of the leaders president of the state of Israel but also as someone who is heavily involved in a personal way in uh, preserving the heritage and researching the heritage of the Jewish communities of that region he wanted to get it we'll get back to that and and uh, and what exactly his involvement was uh, was soon so what happens eventually is in 1958 a couple Murad and Sarina Murad is Mordechai and Sarina Faham um, they smuggle out, they're given the Keter by the Aleppo Jewish community, and they're entrusted with it to smuggle it to the state of Israel. They hide it in a washing machine, and they bring it out. The heads of the Jewish community gave it to him, this mission to get it out. He meets up with a Jewish agency uh, representative in Istanbul, in Turkey, and then from there he comes to Israel, to Haifa. He comes to Yerushalayim, and he meets up with Shlomo Zalman Shragai, um, who's also an important individual, not only in this story, he was mayor of Yerushalayim for a period of time, worked for the Jewish agency, and then uh, it eventually makes it to the hands of President Yitzhak Ben Svi and his institution, which was headed by a fellow by the name of Mayor Benayahu. All these names are important for our story. Three weeks after its arrival in Israel, three crucial weeks after its arrival in Israel, it gets into the hands of Ben Svi. Now, eventually, the one who's, who gets control over the Keter, over the Aleppo Codex, is Yad Yitzchak Ben Svi, the Research Institute, and Hebrew University. In the 1980s, they hand it over to the Israel Museum, which houses it till today in the Shrine of the Book. You can visit it. It's accessible to researchers, it's accessible to visitors to see it, to see the beauty of it and the importance that it has both to Jewish history and heritage, but also to actual importance where it's still used as the basis to write up the Tanakh. Here things get interesting. What gets interesting is when it finally got to the hands of Yitzhak Ben Svi, it's discovered that half, almost half of the Tanakh is missing. Almost half of the pages of this incredible manuscript are gone. And all the years, everyone knew that it was complete. That was one of the beauties of it. Not only was it half gone, but the most, most of what was gone was the Hamisha Chumshei Taira. The first part of Tanakh, there was almost nothing left from the entire Hamisha Chumshei Taira in the Aleppo Codex. Where in the world did it go? What happened to it? When did it go? When did it, where, where did it disappear? What happened? And then, uh, so it was assumed that because it was in the shul that had gotten burnt, so it was probably burnt, and that was assumed for many years. And eventually they did lab tests on, on the manuscript, and there was no evidence of fire. The brown edges were because of mold, not fire. So what's interesting is that a few years ago, an investigative journalist, not a historian, but it's still an impressive uh, research was done, a fellow by the name of Mati Friedman, he wrote a book called The Aleppo Codex, a true, his, a true story of obsession, faith, and the pursuit of an ancient Bible. Now here's there's another twist to the story. The Keter was entrusted to the smuggler, who was a member of the Jewish community there, by the heads of the Jewish community in Aleppo, which in 1958 was still a functioning community. It was shrunken, it was smaller, but it was still functioning. And he was sent to hand it over to the heads of the Aleppo Chaleb Jewish community in Israel, because it belonged to the Aleppo Jewish community. So there were heads of that 
community in Israel, so it was supposed to be handed over to them, that they should be entrusted with it. Well, it wasn't. It was handed over to Yitzhak ben Svi and his institution. And apparently, in that same year, 1958, just a couple of months later, the heads of the Aleppo Jewish community in Israel sued the state of Israel for control over the Qatar. And those court transcripts are available for researchers. And Mati Friedman sat down and actually read them. And apparently, they, eventually they settled that the, both the state and the Aleppo-Israel community have joint ownership over it. But what it seems was that during, from the court transcripts is that during the court proceedings, the Keter was referred to as a whole, an entire entity, that it wasn't anything missing yet, supposedly. So the question is, if it was came to Israel as a whole, entire manuscript, then what happened? How did it disappear once it got to Israel? So he proposes a theory, which is a strong indictment. He proposes a theory that it was stolen. By whom? He has all kinds of ideas. Maybe Meir Benayahu, the head of Yad Yitzchak Ben Svi, maybe the Jewish agency agent in uh, Turkey, maybe Shlomo Zalman Shragai was involved. Who knows? It's impossible. He points fingers at all kinds of people. But he, he doesn't have any you know, clear-cut evidence that it was a specific person. But he, he, uh, his summary uh, of it um, was pretty strong. And by the way, he has no connection to the Syrian Jewish community. He's not religious. It's not, it definitely doesn't come from any, uh, any uh, personal um, uh, thing. But you know, this, is, this is what his, his theory and his discovery was. Now you have to understand there's another thing in context that needs to be spoken out here, and this is probably, you know, a major part of the story. There was a, during the 19, late 40s and early 50s, there was a massive uh, Jewish immigration from the Jewish communities across North Africa and the Middle East due to all kinds of reasons, uh, pogroms and, and exiling and expulsions and voluntary immigration, all kinds of things that were going on. And there was a very patronizing attitude that the uh, secular Ashkenazi, for the most part, a Zionist establishment, had towards Jews and Jewish communities from Muslim lands. And parenthetically, even worse than the way they treated Holocaust survivors, which was pretty bad too, which is also a story. Maybe we'll get to that another time. But it was even they treated them even worse, more patronizing. And one of the things that was done was that there was widespread theft of cultural, religious, and valuable treasures. It's not spoken about much, but almost all of the cultural heritage of Yemenite Jewry was stolen, and from many other countries and many other Jewish communities as well. And they simply felt that uh, they, they couldn't trust, uh, you know, you, we can't trust you to guard your own treasures. The state of Israel We'll do it for you. We can take better care of it than you can, and we need to take care of it, so we're going to take it. And, uh, and, uh, and that's what they did. And, uh, you know, in many instances, you know, it's hard to make generalizations, but it was in many instances. And, and there's an underlying view, which I guess is the justification from that, their point of view, from that point of view, is that in the modern era, the state of Israel becomes the guardian of everything that belongs to the Jewish people, and is the representative of the Jewish people, which, which is something they definitely believed, that was believed by the establishment, and therefore it, they felt justified in, 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 in taking it. So, um, 
In addition, Friedman discovered that it wasn't very well preserved at the uh, Yitzchak Ben-Svi, Yad Yitzchak Ben-Svi Institute. It was damaged. And so Friedman's conclusion, again, an indictment, he said, for a thousand years, Jewish communities managed to protect it and preserve it against all odds. Went through crusades, it went through everything. And here it goes missing, stolen, and damaged when it's under the custodianship of the Jewish state and after a relatively short period of time. The problem is, with having said that and giving that context, which is important context to understand what was going on at the time, um, and when the Syrian, when the Aleppo Jewish community sued the state of Israel, it was not just about the Keter. It was about the cultural heritage and many treasures that were stolen. First and foremost amongst them was the Keter, the Aleppo Codex. That was definitely their top priority, but it wasn't only about that. So it definitely was a widespread phenomenon, and, uh, and it's something to, uh, you know, important and very relevant to keep in mind um, um, about the history of the state of Israel and about the different demographics that made it up in the 1950s, which influenced the identity of the uh, different parts of the state of Israel and its population and its citizens until this very day. Now, there are problems and holes in his theory, um, besides for the fact that not every point of his theory is proven, but it seems that there might have been parts of it already missing before it arrived. Different letters that went back and forth to Aleppo in the 1940s and 50s seem to imply that maybe perhaps up to a quarter of it was already missing um, even before that. Even more interesting, in 1982, a page from Divrei Hayamim from the Aleppo Codex arrives at the Sifriyalu, meet the National Library of the State of Israel, donated by someone in the United States, possibly a member of the, of the Syrian uh, uh, Jewish community. There you go. I mean, where was it? What was going on? In 2007, another half a page appeared, also from a private uh, person in the Syrian Jewish community, donated to, um, to the Israel Museum, and both those pages are now part of the Alep- back part of the Aleppo Codex. So there's a lot about it that's still a mystery. In fact, one of one of uh, Chacham uh, Dabach's uh, great-grandchildren, the last caretaker of the, of the Keter, one of his great-grandchildren produced a documentary um, trying to solve the mystery, but much of it still remains a mystery. And so we're not here to solve the mystery, but to relate the story and the context of that story, much of it, which still has relevance till today. So this was Yehudi Gabru with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest to Jewish history, maybe even to Syria one day, but not in the foreseeable future. And um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.